<clears throat> so, as I said a couple of weeks ago, we did this community meeting. And it was for the purpose of following up on an emotionally draining election season and a surprising result and the fallout both in society and here in our community after the surprising result. And at that meeting, I posed the fundamental question, an existential question really, what kind of community will NRCC be? Or will, will NRCC continue to be what we have aspired to be in the past? I outlined our community's history and the unintended consequence of shape, taking shape the way that we did, being that we gathered people together who typically don't go to church together, which the election showed us is difficult. Uh, so I said, each one of us doesn't just face the communal question of what kind of community will we be, we also face the personal question of will we stay? Will we stay in a community that is aspiring to walk a harder way? Will we stay in a community that is trying to do the harder thing? Now, our church has done plenty of hard work through the years. We have deconstructed some deep religious instincts about Christianity, and because it was such deep work, it took a long time. It was visceral work. It was gut work. We worked on our instincts about God. We worked on our instincts about human nature. We worked on those primal impulses that we carry around from the religious tradition about God and sin and punishment. And it was writer work and it was elephant work. And because it was elephant training work, and if you don't know what that means, we just did a lesson on Amos where we talked about the difference between the writer and the elephant. You can listen online. Because it was the deep work, the elephant training work, it took time. It took a long time. And given my personality, as it took a long time, I got impatient. I do that. And so frequently I'd find myself in a sense of impatience about our community, wanting the work to go faster, wanting us to be further along, wanting us to have done more. And along the way, uh, Robin said something to me that has stuck. It was during one of my spasms of moreness and fasterness. And she said, if you want to go fast, Doug, you'll have to go alone. But if you want to go long, we'll have to go together. If you want to go fast, you'll have to go alone. But if you want to go long, we'll have to go together. Going long is harder. Going long is slower. Going long is messier. There's a bunch of extra work involved going long. So go fast, go alone, go long, go together. So in essence, at our community meeting, what I was asking you was to go long. I was asking us to go together and to do it with eyes wide open to our differences. Eyes wide open to these profound differences. Now the differences have always been there, but the election revealed them to us in a way that we had not seen. So going long and going together implies what I hold to be true, that our community is not aspiring to be an echo chamber. We aren't aspiring to go fast at the expense of long. We could go faster if we would just subtly, quietly squeeze out people who are different. We could go faster if we did what many churches do, and that is retreat to the safety of sameness. We could go much faster. 
Now, at our community meeting, I ask you to stay, but I ask you to stay for the long journey, not the short one. I ask you to stay and figure out how to love one another across the gulfs that divide us so that we could go together. Now, I talked a bit about why churches tend to be homogeneous, and it's a brain instinct thing. If you missed, listen online. You can hear it from two weeks ago. The hardwiring in our heads is designed to help us feel safe. It's a brain instinct thing that seeks the safety of in-grouping. In-grouping feels safe. It's an instinct to be around others who are like us. In the deep, vulnerable parts of our lives, we especially want to be around people who are like us. Sameness feels safe. When I feel vulnerable, I instinctively gravitate to the in-grouping instinct because it makes me feel safe. So in two areas of our lives, in our sexuality and in our spirituality, we instinctively seek the safety of sameness because those are such vulnerable parts of our lives. They're so deep. Parents often pressure children to marry within their culture. There were quite a few Korean kids in the college group that I led in Los Angeles before I moved here, and a big thing for them was navigating the cultural and the interior pressure that they felt to find a Korean boy or to find a Korean girl to fall in love with and to marry. And to do that at the same time that they were going to school with and going to church with lots of different really nice boys and girls from very different cultures. So what would happen is they would fall in love. And then that pressure would kick in and it would be a thing. If you've seen the movie The Fiddler on the Roof, you see the same thing happening in the Jewish context. It's a thing. It's a thing because sexuality is deep and vulnerable and intimate. And that vulnerability naturally seeks safety and sameness feels safe. And in our spirituality, it's the same thing. I grew up in three churches, three main churches, uh, in, and those three churches represent the three main wings of American Christianity. I grew up in a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, and an Assembly of God church. So I grew up evangelical, and I grew up liturgical, and I grew up Pentecostal. And I learned horrible things about Pentecostals from Baptists. <laughs> They're from the devil, in case you didn't know. <laughs> I learned that liberal mainline Christians are dead as a doornail. I learned that from the Pentecostals. And around the triangle it goes. And these folks are almost the same. I mean, they're not even Buddhists for goodness sake. They're all Christian. But they were different enough that the differences evoked the safety-seeking of sameness. So it's a thing. It's yet one more of the hardwired into our brain survival instincts that we carry. It's another survive out on the Serengeti holdover that's wired into our heads that evolved at a time when it worked in one context to keep us thriving and surviving. But now that the context has changed, the wiring is still there in our brains. It's another living by instinct setting that we carry in our heads. Settings that the spiritual journey is again and again wired to help us transcend. So we've seen again and again that just because something is instinctive doesn't mean that it's a reflection of the deepest truth, doesn't mean that it's a reflection of the highest height or the realest real. Now, if you've been to one of the Disney parks, you've probably seen a ride there. They've had it for 50 years. It's a small world. Now, riders get into these boats and they weave their way through a maze of wide-eyed, incredibly cute children 
who are robots and from, they're coming from every race and every culture that is imaginable. And these super cute robot kids sing a song over and over. My God, they sing and sing this song. It's a small world. It's a small world. It's a small world. Did you get that? It's a small world. Now they could just as well be singing your Serengeti brain instincts. Yeah, they don't tell the whole story. Your instinct for the safety of sameness, it's not the final word on this human adventure. There's a higher path. There's a truer path. There's a bigger path. Now these robot kids, they're singing the same truth that Paul sang years ago to a very different society with a different history, with different social and racial complexities. But as the old saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun. Paul was saying the same thing that the robot kids are saying. Paul said it to a group of folks living in Galatia, which is now Turkey. He said that when we walk the spiritual path, when we awaken to the deeper spiritual life, the spirit life, we begin to see the limits of our sectarian divisions. It turns out those divisions are not as real as they first appear. It turns out, he says, that Jew and Gentile, they are one, they're not two. It turns out that slave and free, he said, are one, they are not two. It turns out that male and female are one, he says, not two. Oneness, Paul says, is a truer true than two-ness. In another one of his letters, he said it this way. This one was to the folks in Rome. He says that we being many, in a deeper and truer way, are really one. We are one body, every one of us a member of every other one of us. So Paul is telling us the same things that the robot kids are telling us at Disney. Paul is telling us why what Robin told me is true. Because there's a reason that if you go fast, you go alone. If you go long, you go together. There's a reason that that's true. The reason is that oneness is a thing. Oneness is a real thing. Now, sometimes it's such a deep reality that it's difficult to intuit. Sometimes it's hard to see because we feel very much like we are two. We feel very much our own two-ness. And anybody who's married knows that. You have felt your two-ness. Oh, my Lord, I've felt the two-ness. Anybody who's had a child, anyone who's had a knucklehead boss or anyone who's uh, had a black life that has been devalued by white lives or any gay life that has felt marginalized by straight lives or any white life that is feeling shamed and blamed for history, we all feel our two-ness and we feel it very deeply all the time. So when we feel that two-ness so incredibly deeply... Well, thank you, Paul, for that oneness idea. But I've got a cranky wife, and I'm not seeing it. And if we're honest, oneness is kind of a vague idea. Now, in the skillful hands of a gifted teacher, it makes for a good sermon. <laughs> oh, come on, you can't just sit there and not laugh at that. <laughs> the concept of oneness can inspire good feelings, it can stir us to lofty ambitions, it can even arouse aspirations within us. But when the real world hits the fan and real people are suffering real pain, it can seem like an ethereal luxury that we can't really afford. And when there's all that pressure that comes from emotional upheaval and it hits hard, the vague idea of oneness can really feel kind of anemic. When clean water is being fracked away, when blackness is being criminalized and incarcerated, 
Who has time for pie-in-the-sky ideas like oneness? John Pavlovitz sends me some of the emails he gets from time to time of people who are on the receiving end of hurt and hurtful things that get perpetuated in their lives, in their gay lives, in their lives of color. I got an email recently from a white woman who every time she pays the bills she cries because she can't. And every month she mourns her inability to care for her children and yet she regularly feels shamed by her peers for her privilege. And when there's that much volatility in the system, when there's that much emotion in the system, oneness, to give that any attention, it seems pretty irrelevant. But here's the thing about our spiritual tradition. It's pretty counterintuitive. Here's the thing about our spiritual tradition. It invites us to live counterculturally. Spirituality evokes a life that is deeper than our brain instincts tend to be wired for. Spirituality invites us to a perspective that is more elevated than our brain instincts are wired for. So our Advent reading this morning highlights the differentness of the spiritual life. Reflecting on John the Baptist, the reading reminded us of his offbeat nature, how he walked to the beat of a different drum, how his rituals were so weird, how peculiar were the images that he used, and how weird the spiritual concepts are that to get bigger you have to get smaller, to go high you have to get low, to go long you have to move slowly, to be truly full you have to empty yourself to carve out emptiness in which the divine grows and flowers both in us and through us. It's all pretty weird. Lofty ideas are all pretty weird. Abstract, ethereal, conceptual ideas like oneness. And so when it's that weird, when it's that strange, when it's that offbeat, it's difficult to marshal the energy that's required to pursue these abstract ideals, which makes it seem like a luxury that we can't afford Because, come on, the world is crashing around us. But here's the thing. Ours is not the first generation to get caught up in a firestorm. Ours is not the first generation to be overrun by dark times. Ours is not the first generation to be caught up by divisions and hurts and wounds and internal dissent and external threat. And those generations, the one who've gone before us, often with the wisdom of hindsight, having looked back at their own instinct-driven reactions, offer us a roadmap to do better. They offer us a roadmap to a higher life. And oneness is one of the things that they reiterate again and again and again. Oneness, they tell us, is a real thing. It's not a luxury. It's not a fool's errand. It's not empty navel-gazing. It's not empty dreams. Rather, it's an orienting principle of a deeper life that informs everything that we do. It's an orienting principle of a deeper life that informs how we live and move and have our being. Now, like most, I am very concerned about the racial divide in our nation. I'm very concerned that we are turning a blind eye to the hurt that we as a society cause immigrants to the pain that we cause LGBT people, to the pain that we cause foreigners. 
I'm concerned that we, might, that we are polluting the water that we're going to leave to our grandbabies. I'm concerned that we won't leave our children a functioning government. I'm concerned that we will leave them a corrupt system in which money can buy legislation that's good for those with money but not good for the people. I'm very concerned about the things that our collective awareness is rising to. Because right now, anybody who's paying attention is seeing things that seem to be laying dormant for a while and they're no longer laying dormant. I also share the instinct that when real people are being hurt and real lives are being upended and real pain is being inflicted, we need to do something. And we need to do something now and something fast and something loud and something noisy. So again, our whole society is awakening to things dormant for a long time. Now the kids have an expression <clears throat> that's a little crude for church, but you can rest secure. My wife has already heard me say it in church and she will chastise me properly. <clears throat> and that is this, shit's getting real, people. <laughs> and when it gets this real, and when we see what we haven't seen, if we weren't roused to want to do something, there would be something wrong with us. James told us that faith that isn't accompanied by works is a dead faith. But the other thing is that the spiritual tradition grants us a couple of very important advantages. First, it grants us the accumulated experience of those who've gone before us. Second, it grants us a pathway to tap into the deeper life that exists within us. And those two advantages can help us do better at what needs doing. We can do better than a spasmodic knee-jerk response. We can learn from those who've gone before us how to bring about substantive, true, and deep change. So we had a communi community meeting a couple weeks ago and I asked you to stay. And when I did, I asked you to stay and figure out together how to go long by going together. And I was asking you to learn to love across the divides, not by ignoring them and not by sweeping them under the carpet. I was not asking you to suppress your hurt feelings as if we could actually do that. I was asking you to learn to be countercultural. I was asking you to walk to the beat of a different drum. I was asking you to be like John the Baptist on the spiritual path, a little weird a little offbeat, a little different. I was asking you to do better than the path of least resistance, which is to follow the instincts that are wired into our brains and to do more than just vent our offense. I was asking you that when the challenge becomes very clear that our world is broken, that we would do the kind of work that would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Now those numbers come from a Bible story. And it was a Bible story that Jesus told and he was speaking about return on investment that accrues when we transcend the normal way of doing business. When we break out of the habitual patterns that are hardwired into our brains, there is a way to see return on the energy that we bring toward healing the world that begins to transcend the normal kinds of returns. There's a way to act and there's a way to react that comes from a higher and deeper and truer, a divine set of principles.
one of which is oneness. Wrongs that need to be made right, they've come front and center for us. And we Christians are seeing them. And it is dawning on us that our world needs to be repaired. And for that, words need to be said, noise will need to be made, actions will need to be taken. But today's reading reminds us that those words and those noises and those actions will likely be offbeat if they come from a spiritual center. Those words and those noises and those actions will likely be different, counterintuitive, countercultural. Oneness isn't ethereal. Oneness is just weird. Oneness is, isn't impractical. It's just offbeat and nobody does it. Oneness isn't impractical. It's just unexpected. It's countercultural. But we go long because we take the different approach. We go long because we insist on going in oneness. We go long because oneness is a real thing. And we're going to be more effective together because oneness is a thing. We learned from the law of three this summer, and if you missed that, listen online starting somewhere in early July. We learned about the law of three, which points us to why we need one another. And it's this in a nutshell. When we are on one side of a dividing gulf, we need those on the other side of that gulf because oneness is a thing. When there is a divide, we need an affirming force or the denying force that's on the other side. If we are the affirming, we need the denying. If we are the denying, we need the affirming. Brain instincts, however, prefer that that force stay right where it is, over there, away from me, far on the other side. But the law of three tells us that both are partners in a dance, a binary dance, an affirming-denying dance, a pushing for, a pushing against dance. And even though brain instincts tend to demonize the other and tell that the dance partner is somehow evil and can only see the wrong parts of the, our dance partner's story, they're an essential part of a triad, each a part for creating a new reality that has not yet emerged. And this new reality that has not yet been seen is difficult to imagine because it has not yet been seen. So consequently, it becomes very easy to demonize the other. It becomes very easy to say that the other is the problem. But if both forces are not present, we learned, and if a new and third force is not introduced then a new reality simply does not emerge. And we remain locked in this binary dance, which we've seen these last years is anything but a dance. Better to say that we remain locked in a binary catfight. Our nation is in upheaval right now, and it's gotten real. And my prayer is that it's gotten real enough for us to see how desperately we need a new reality, how desperate enough for us to be willing to do what is required to discern and internalize and to listen to and learn the way of the other side and together to discern what the third force is so that we can then apply it. Now, we tend to have less influence on federal and state government than we do on our own families and than we do here in our own spiritual community. What we do, however, in a smaller stage right here is 
an essential beginning point. If we are faithful here in this community, Jesus tells us, we'll get to have more influence. But it starts here. It starts with us learning how to do this here. So if you decide to stay, it will not be to entrench in your force. If you decide to say, stay, even though your affirming force is valid, if your denying force is valid, even though you see a truth that is an important truth, nevertheless, we entrench in those truths, we shut off the possibility of a new reality. Because both are part of a process for new realities to emerge, and a reconciling force is important for a new reality to emerge. Which means we both have to be present for us to go forward. And if we don't go together, we don't learn how to do oneness. And oneness, again, is not a pie-in-the-sky luxury, it's a demand. We cannot afford to be a sameness kind of church. Now, there are several people in our community right now who are feeling deeply hurt. They're feeling dirt hurt, some of them, because of the way that other people voted. They're feeling hurt because unjust accusations were hurled. They're feeling hurt because they weren't stood up for, or they were, they were stood up for, but not in the right way. That's what happens when people have the audacity to try and live oneness instead of sameness. That's what happens when we being midi try to be one body. That's what happens when we try to live as though every member, every one of us is a member of every other one of us. It gets real and sometimes it gets painfully real. But again, oneness is the realer real. Now that doesn't mean, however, that Tunis isn't also real. It is. It's just not the realest. It's just not the strongest truth. I believe what Robin told me several years ago. To go long, we go together. Because I've gone fast before. I spent a lot of my youthful energy in noble pursuits, repairing the earth, fixing what was broken, going after the gulfs that divide us. I did that. But I did it fast. And I did it informed only by one force. I did it informed by what I could see, which was my truth. I did it what we, those of us who agree on this truth, could see our truth. I did it on the basis of my insight. I did it on the basis of our, our group's insight. I did it on the basis of one force. But now I'm old. And now I see that if we don't go together, we don't really change much. If left and right don't go together. If black and white don't go together. If gay and straight don't go together. If tree huggers and hard-nosed business folks don't go together. If we don't go together, we won't go long. If we don't go together, we won't affect the kind of change that lasts. And that's what I'm asking you to do when I ask you to stay. I'm asking us to figure, out, figure it out here. We can't ask our governing officials to figure that out until we have figured it out. We've got to figure out. We might be given the gift of giving something away if we have that something. That's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to do that when I ask you to stay part of the community. I'm asking you to do that when I ask you to come for those five Wednesdays in January, early February. I'm asking you to come and learn a set of skills that will allow us to do oneness. 
I'm asking you to learn some practical processes that help people learn how to go together so that they can go long. I'm asking you to come. I'm asking you to stay. I'm asking you to do the work. I'm asking you to learn. And now we're going to start doing some practical applications of that in the days ahead. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be discerners of deep and powerful and spiritual ways to affect change, beginning within, but extending to the world around us. I pray that that would be so, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would...